This week is uh, is a special week. Do you guys know why? Thank you. I'm so glad you said Easter. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in high church tradition and just church history, this week is commonly referred to as Holy Week. Um, this being the third day of Holy Week, it began on Sunday where Jesus rides into town on this donkey. The beautiful thing about that day is that that was the day that Israel was going to be selecting their Passover lamb. And so as Israel is choosing their Passover lamb, here comes riding into town fulfilling prophecies of old, the Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb. And so he comes riding into town. And, and now we find ourselves here on Tuesday. Things have already transpired on Monday. And if you read through the, the, weeks, or the week preceding, all the, everything from the triumphal entry uh, up until the cross, there's, there's days that the church has kind of marked out it says, this happened on this day, this happened on this day. And so I want to read you a passage of scripture that, that has come from uh, what's been marked out to have occurred on, on Tuesday of Holy Week. And I'm going to be reading in Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. Jesus is going through a series of things. He's, this is the day that he curses the fig tree and it withers. Um, uh, this is uh, a day where he tells several parables and he talks about his return even and and he tells this this particular parable so it's Matthew 21:33 he says here another parable there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it dug a wine press in it and built a tower and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country now when vintage time drew near he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit and the vine dressers took his servant beat one killed one and stoned another Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And the parable doesn't end there, and, and Jesus says, what, what do you think the, vine, uh, or the, the owner of the vineyard did? And uh, they talk about how he probably uh, had the, the men punished who had done that. But the reason why I just want to stop there and read just that part of the parable is because Jesus is obviously talking about himself. And he's talking not just about himself, he's talking about what he's going to be doing three days later. What he's saying is this, this vineyard, uh, the vine, the grapevine, a picture of Israel throughout the Old Testament. He's saying, in essence, this is Israel, this vineyard. And God has sent his, his servants, his prophets, time and time again to warn Israel, to tell of the Messiah's coming. And then he sends his son, and what they do to the son is that they kill him. Now the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the scribes, they're all really offended because they know that Jesus is talking about them, them being the ones who have rejected the son. And it's really interesting to me that they know that Jesus is talking about them, that they feel convicted of that. And Jesus doesn't necessarily point at them and say, and you guys are those land uh, tenants, um, but yet they know internally who he's referring to is, is us. And um, as we think about Holy Week, as we think about Good Friday, as we think about the coming of uh, the resurrection, Easter Sunday, um, I, I think about how significant it is that Jesus talks about this parable just a couple of days before his death. And he's, he's giving everybody an overview of what has transpired in Israel and how they've continually rejected the word of God and then ultimately his own son. 
And Jesus is prophesying at this point. He's talking about what's going to happen. And it doesn't even change the fact that that's what happens. It had to happen. Jesus is the lamb that's slain before the foundation of the world. But I bring up this parable because what I wanted to kind of raise in our own hearts is the question of where do I fall into this story? In any, in any kind of story we can do that, we can place ourselves into the word and we can begin to, to see it from a different perspective. We can enter into the text if we allow ourselves to do that. And uh, I want to suggest that we're not Jesus, okay? So as we would listen to this parable, as we would hear it, what I would wonder is, um, who am I in this story then? And what I, what I think it also begs the question of is, are we those land tenants who continually are rejecting God's word and even at times are rejecting the Messiah? When we think about this week and when we think about Good Friday, when we think about Easter Sunday, how often are we rejecting the love of Christ? How often are we rejecting his presence from our life? And are there places, really, that the Lord would say, hey, I want to be present with you in that place? Or, hey, I want to love you in that place. Would you let me join you there? Would you invite me in because that's where I want to love you? God wants to love us in the deep. God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in, our, in the true self and the true, true heart in all the dirt and all the grime and all the filth. And we get to celebrate this weekend something marvelous, the fact that Jesus died to remove all of that. But that's where he's dwelling. And that's the place that he is sanctifying us, transforming our hearts in that place of truthfulness and the truth of our hearts and the truth of ourself. And so this evening, with all these ideas just kind of floating around, I want us to pray and to present ourselves to the Lord, but the true self to say, um, Jesus, I don't want to reject you. And, and God, I don't want to reject your word. I don't want to reject your word tonight. I don't want to reject it this week, especially this week. Might I embrace it as I look forward to Friday, as I look forward to Sunday. Might I embrace it. And so would you guys join me in, in simply allowing our hearts to be open to the Spirit tonight and then ongoing as we progress through this week, as we look forward to the cross, as we look forward to the resurrection. And so tonight, would you do that just by opening your hands, this being a posture of us saying, here I am, Lord. And uh, this is a posture both of giving and of receiving. When we give, we, can, uh, we have to do that open-handedly. When we receive, we have to do that open-handedly. And so, Lord, here we are. And we are here for you tonight. We're here to meet with you. And Lord, I just ask that we would take inventory right now of, of how it is that we approach you. Do we approach you with this posture of wanting to push you away? Or maybe there's, uh, maybe there's things that you are, are looking to explore in our hearts with us, but we don't want to um, really acknowledge that we're loved in that place, maybe because it seems too atrocious to us. Maybe it's unbearable to us, and so we try to keep you out of that area, God. I know that you desire to really go into those places. That's what you want to sanctify. And so, Lord, would we this week especially, would we have our hearts postured in such a way that we are open towards you, that we are turned towards you, as we look forward to the cross, as we look forward to the resurrection? This is a holy week. And so, Lord, I pray that your blessing would be over tonight. I believe that it is. But that you would use tonight to uh, inform us and, and ultimately to transform us, to take us into deeper intimacy with you. And that um, each day this week that we would be mindful of,
of what this week represents, of who this week is about, of the glory that we are joining into with you as a result of it. And so God, be blessed. We bless your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, can you put your hands together for Nathan? Yeah. Um, I want to just uh, do a couple of commercials here before we go any further. Um, and one of them is this, that next week, I'm going to finish the book tonight. I know I'm a, a week ahead, but I need to do that because next week, uh, Corey Stark will be here with us from uh, IHOP KC. And he's going to be actually meeting with uh, us uh, for two days as we put in place uh, the uh, House of Prayer. So actually starting that structure, that foundation, it was uh, pretty cool today. We, um, we have some applications here for the House of Prayer for people who want to make that a part of their vocational ministry. And uh, whether it's part-time or full-time, um, the details of that are not on there. But hopefully by now you've heard a little bit, you know enough about that. If there's an interest on your part to do that, then fill out one of these applications and you might even put a note at the bottom. I'm not sure what this means, but it sounds great. If you want to be a part of House of Prayer and you, you just say, no, I just want to come and show up and be a part of that, then that's not what this is for because it'll be open to everybody. Uh, but this is really for you saying, I really would see myself as a vocational intercessor before God so that you would commit to, if you're part-time, you'd commit to half of your time, 20 hours, 10 of it would be in the house of prayer. If you're full-time, then it would double that number. And the idea is that we want to have a foundation and a base here of people who are praying. So as this is really what we talked about at our anniversary, that we are birthing a house of prayer mission agency. So we are going to function like that. We will also be identifying uh, we've already identified two areas where we're going to have mission locations somewhere down the road. Uh, let's say someone says, you know, I've been in house of prayer for a year now and I really feel a really heart tug, uh, for example, to go to South Africa, be a part of what Jared's doing in uh, Johannesburg. And what you would do then is that person would then move to Johannesburg and half of their time there would be setting up a house of prayer and the other half would be actually ministering with him in the air of evangelism have another location in Uganda in an orphanage, um, and that's another one, same kind of thing. We're not going to be ready for that transition for probably six months because we have to establish people uh, here in House of Prayer. Uh, it may take longer than that, but we definitely want to get that rolling. So I look forward to Corey being with us, and he'll share with us. There will be a couple of opportunities for you to be a part of that. Uh, actually, probably most of what we do, you all can be a part of that if you're free during the day or the night, Tuesday and Wednesday. So that's following Easter, Tuesday, Wednesday, okay? Uh, Tuesday morning is our normal staff meeting at 10 o'clock. We're going to open that up for everybody to come. Corey will be teaching. Sunday, uh, Tuesday night we'll have school of ministry, so he'll be here for that. And then we'll have a Wednesday schedule as well. So we're going to put all those things together and uh, just in an email, and we'll get that out to you uh, just as quick as we can. So Corey and I are trying to work out the details on that. So that's a good news, huh? Amen? It's uh, exciting to see that begin to move. Um, I, want to, uh, I want to ask you to take your Bibles, and I want to start um, not at the beginning of what we would normally do here, and, and that is work our way through chapter 7 and going forward. I want to jump a little bit ahead to chapter 8 
and to um, a scripture. So let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Um, in chapter 20, there is a story of, um, of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat is, is really uh, being circled by the enemy. And if you've ever been circled by the enemy, you know what it feels like. Anybody here never had that experience? You've never felt like you've been circled by the enemy? Well, when you find yourself circled by the enemy, I want you to just see some of the natural reactions here that happens. In verse 3, it says, Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed to fast throughout all of Judah. So the, the immediate human response for Jehoshaphat was fear. Fear comes in when you're overwhelmed. But fear is not the problem. The problem is your reaction to fear. And there's two reactions we can have. You know, one is we can say, you know, it's kind of like that flight and fight thing. I'm going to run away from this. Or the fight thing is what Jehoshaphat decided to do. And look how he fought. To seek the Lord and proclaim to fast throughout all of Judah. And so his immediate response was that. Immediately response was that. But what's interesting is the way that he's going to go about this. Now, if you just flip the page, I want to take you to uh, what happens in verse 17. And that's really where I want you to focus for a minute. He says, God says, you will not need to fight in this battle. You know what's interesting about that? Right next to that, put Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Because when God tells you to put on the full armor of God, did you ever notice what he tells you to do? He says, stand. Having stood, stand therefore. And so it's an unusual thing to go into battle and to stand, isn't it? Because what you're really doing is you're saying, this is not about me, God. This is about what's going on here. The victory is not mine. The victory is ultimately yours. So he says, you do not need to fight in this battle. Position yourself Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. Now, what I want you to focus in on here is he says this, position yourself. In other words, there is a right position or posture to put yourself before God. Maybe in part what he was saying, get yourself in a place of prayer. Get yourself in a place of openness to God. I want you to position yourselves, and I want you to stand still. Now, the reason he tells them to stand still is because what's their normal reaction when the enemy's coming? To run or to run in either direction, run toward the enemy or run away from the enemy, right? In other words, your normal reaction is there's something I've got to do. That's a human reaction. That's the reaction that, that we slip into when we say, let me use my reason or my skills to do this. Let me trust in myself. Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. So when you lean on your own understanding, you're saying, well, it seems to me that, or this is what I should do that. But you know, the hardest thing and the simplest thing is to stand still. God, I don't know what you're doing in this situation. I am standing still. Because if I move this way and you're not moving, then I've missed out on what you're doing. If I move this way and you're not moving that way, what I'm going to do is I'm going to miss out on the victory that you alone can bring. 
And until we stand still, so he says, stand, stand, stand still, and see. If you've ever stood and just watched something transpire, you might stand and watch a sunset. You might stand and watch a, a, a football game, a baseball game, anything like You stand and you say, I'm just going to watch and see what happens here. Because I don't want to miss what God is doing. You see, the moves of God are so subtle and so gentle that you can miss out on what God has been doing. When God wanted to, when God took his prophet and his prophet said, show me your face, it'll be enough. He said, no, you stand here in the rock. You stand right here. Don't you move. If you move, you're going to miss when I go by. In Revelation, it says that, that Jesus is, is moving through the candlesticks, meaning the church. And all you see is the trail of his robe. You see that train of the robe as it comes by, and somehow he's brushing his way in and through. But if you don't stand, you'll miss it. See, we're so anxious to do something. We're so anxious to put our hand to something. And when we do, we miss this. So stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and O Jerusalem. Do not fear. I know you've been fearing, Jehoshaphat. Don't fear. Don't fear. Do you, think about this. Think about your biggest problem you've ever faced in your life. Is it bigger than God? I mean, th- seriously. But have you ever noticed when you're in the middle of a problem, it seems bigger than, than God's ability to jump in? Or God is not timely. God is late. Come on, God. What are you waiting for? No, Stand. Stand still. Just stand. Don't you hate it? Don't you hate to stand still? Don't you hate to wait on God? Really and truly, don't you hate it? Don't you want to help God along? Don't you want to encourage God and how he's failed and moving and acting on your behalf? Don't you hate standing still? You should because it runs against the grain of the natural man who wants to do something. But when you stand and you position yourself, remember, position yourself, stand, you're going to see the salvation of the Lord. He's with you. Don't fear or be dismayed. So on one hand, what do I do? I fear. Oh, God, what am I going to do? God, what am I going to do? I'm afraid I'm going to run. Dismayed. I'm so discouraged. I just think, I don't know how this thing is going to work. I don't know what God's doing. Where's God at? You miss it. You know what happens when you get dismayed or fearful? Where do you look? When you get discouraged, dismayed, what do you look? You look down. Crap. What am I going to do? God went by. He just did something. You missed it. You missed it. You missed what God was really doing. You thought you knew what God should do, but you missed what God was really doing in that situation. All it took for the Apostle Peter was to take his eyes off Jesus for one second, and what did he do? He began to sink. He began to sink. So he tells us here, do not fear, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Okay, now I've stood long enough. Now I'm going to go out, and what am I going to do? Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, and they worshiped God. First thing we're going to do is we're going to worship. 
That doesn't seem like a very... Shouldn't we sharpen some swords? No. Worship. Why worship? I was driving over there uh, tonight, and I was, uh, I was listening to uh, Jesus Culture, uh, one of their albums. And I was driving, and, and that, that psalm, I think it's Psalm 55, I think it is, maybe 35, it's one of those fives. Um, anyway, it was, I was saying about that, you know, God inhabits the praises of his people. Do we know that scripture, right? We, God inhabits, God inhabits the praise of his people. Now let's just, I like to take scriptures and reverse them. Then where is God when we're not praising? No, he's, he's not there in the same capacity, right? He's present and yet he's absent in some way, right? Because if we say God inhabits the praise of his people, then what does he do when we don't praise? Oh, he's omnipresent. He's always present everywhere. But would we not agree that there is a sense in which the presence of God shows up at times and we, we have an awareness of God? Can, can we not see that? Okay, so if I don't praise him, then I am somehow losing a dimension of the presence of God. I don't understand that, but I, it's the only way I can really make sense of his presence does show up at times in greater ways. I, I have a greater awareness of it, and God inhabits the praise of his people. So I'm driving over here, and I'm thinking about just these five acres that were on here. And all I can think about is praise. And I thought, why have I not thought of this before? Why don't we have speakers with praise going on 24-7 on these five acres? I'm not talking about blaring and scaring everybody off from the post office. I'm talking about just soft praise. You walk in here, what, what is that? It's loud enough for the enemy to hear it. It's loud enough for somebody who walks on the campus to hear it, but it's not like, gosh, that's crazy noise. I hear it from the street. If God indeed inhabits the praises of his people, then should we not have his praises not only going on as many hours as we can pump into house of prayer, but should we not also have his praise going on our campus? Why not, right? So we're going to start putting that in motion. So when you come on this campus, you're going to be praise here all the time, seven days a week, 24 hours, seven days a week, 24 hours. We're just going to praise his name. You know, the presence of God is, is geographical. There, there is a sense in which God shows up at certain places for some reason. I'm sure it's connected somehow to the praise. I'm sure it's somehow connected to prayer. I don't have any doubt about that. So we want this to be a geographical point of the presence of God. And we're going to do everything to ensure that that happens. Amen. Now, let's keep going here because this is, this is so powerful. We haven't even got to the good stuff yet, right? Don't you love the Word of God? Isn't it good? The Word of God is so good. Jehoshaphat bows his head and his face to the ground. This is not on your knees in a chair. This is, this is the Eastern picture of some Pilates move, right? He's got his face down on the ground. He's going as low as he can go to the ground, and all of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord and worshiped the Lord. Then the Levites, that is the priestly tribe, and the children of the Kohites and the children of the Korites, they stood up to praise the Lord of Israel with their voices loud and high. This is the craziest preparation for war I've ever seen. Second Corinthians 20, if you guys are, for those of you who may have just came in. Second Corinthians chapter 20 and verse 20. 
So they rose early in the morning, and they went into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and all you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord, who should praise the beauty of his holiness. And they went out before the army, and they were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. So this is their chorus. They're going out to battle going, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Praise the Lord, his mercy endures forever. Just say it with me. Praise the Lord, his mercy endures forever. Praise the Lord, his mercy endures forever. Praise the Lord, his mercy endures forever. He was putting all of demonic forces on notice. This is not our battle. This is the battle of the Lord. When you try to fight, you lose. You lose. You've lost already. You don't even have to, you don't even have to pray. Just you've already lost when you think you have to fight. So they're going out. They're saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. It's right out of Psalm 136, I believe. Praise the Lord, his mercy endures forever. Praise the Lord. You know, when you're in the middle of a battle, have you ever sung that? Have you ever thought anything like that? Just say, God, praise God, your mercy endures forever. Praise God, your mercy endures forever. And what you're doing is you are reestablishing and recentering your spirit with the Holy Spirit. You're inviting the presence of God into your presence you're putting all of hell on notice that you are moving in the power of the Spirit of God and you're not worried about the other stuff. God will do this. God will do this. Now, look what happens, verse 22. And when they began to sing. I don't know if you know where this is going. If you're reading ahead, if you've read ahead, if you know the story, I want you to, in your Bible, I want you to circle the word when. The word when is one of the most significant words, W-H-E-N. The word when is a significant word. In the book of Job, chapter 42, it says that when Job prayed for his friends, God restored the fortunes to Job. You can go throughout Scripture and you'll find it. The word win, they're significant. God says, I'm waiting for you to win. You need a win moment in your life. When you begin to sing, when you begin to pray, it's remarkable how many times those W-I-Ns are tied to those W-H-E-Ns. They're not tied to you. Forget about you. You are not going to W-I-N until you W-H-E-N. So it says, when they began to sing and to praise, look what the Lord did. The Lord set an ambush against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. They literally fought themselves. They killed off each other. God didn't have to throw firebrands down to them. God didn't have to have them pick up a sword and kill anybody. 
He brought such confusion in the heart of the enemy when they began to praise, when they began to sing, that the enemy literally destroyed itself. It turned on itself. Satan will always turn on himself if you position yourself and stand and wait. And you begin to praise is when you activate the Spirit of God for the enemies to begin to turn on themselves. Win. It's a win moment in your life. Now, take your Bibles. And by the way, this is, uh, if you're saying, is that in the book? Well, not everything I said, but the reference to it is on, in, uh, on page um, 119. But now let me just take you over to Psalm. Let me take you to Psalm, the book of Psalms. Psalms has the most meaning when you begin to understand that it is not a nice little songbook that David did to keep the sheep happy. Okay? It is a battle charge primarily designed to fit within the millennial kingdom of God. Did you hear that? It is, it is ultimately a battle command or a charge given for the millennial kingdom of God. Its position is significant. It follows the book of Job for a reason. Job is a picture of the tribulation. Job is a picture of the tribulation saint, the Jew going through the tribulation. When you come out of the tribulation, you go into the millennium. Psalms doesn't make a lot of sense unless you understand it in that context. Any more than the Beatitudes make sense unless you understand them in the kingdom. Because that stuff's not happening on earth right now. Meek aren't getting the earth. The non-meek are getting the earth. Now, watch this. And remember, whenever you move into the Scripture, remember you're going into, you're going into, a, a, into a building that has many layers. I'm going in on the first floor. I think he's talking about one thing, and before I get very far into this, he's taking me to the third floor. He's taking me into a spiritual dimension. He's showing me things that I need to see. And if I miss that, all I end up with is Jesus is like bread. No, he is bread. He's not like bread. He is bread. He's living bread. Jesus is like water. No, he is water. You can't live without water and you can't live without bread. That is food. So if you think he's just like that, you're on first floor. You've got to go to the next floor. Then you begin to see Jesus is the bread of life that comes down the manna was a picture of that. Manna was Jesus coming down, and you have to accept him because today is a day of salvation because manna doesn't last more than one day. It dissolved, and you had to go back the next day. Today is a day of salvation. Jesus said, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden it against Now, watch what he says here. This is a powerful psalm. I'm going to just take you to, the, to verse 1 because it's just so good. Sing to the Lord a new song. What new song? Any new song you want to come up with. Your new song might be, praise God, I just give you all praise and glory. Praise God, I give you all. That's a new song. It's a new song. And so in Psalm 149, if I said 148, I apologize, Psalm 149. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. You see, you've got to position yourself understanding God is the creator. God is the creator God. If you miss out on God being creator, you can't go on to praise. 
That's why people who've got an evolutionary view of, of the world find it hard to understand God. Because unless God is creator, you can't understand the praise of God. Because he was just there as a bystander while everything kind of unfolded. Now watch this. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let the praise of his name, let, let them praise him, uh, his name with the dance. Man, Baptists hate that verse. You ever dance before the Lord? I mean, you can do it at home and where nobody can see you. You might just be sitting there thinking, I feel like dancing, but I'm so bad I'm not going to do it. You might, your dance might just be kind of, you know, the, you know, I'm rocking the baby dance, right? But what happens is, you see, God is tied to that movement. You know, you know that, that, that the Jews understand this so well that if you've ever watched Jews, when they're reciting Scripture, they're rocking. You ever notice this? You know why? Because rhythm is tied to memory. Because rhythm is tied to all those neural sensors inside of you, and that's why rhythmic uh, poetic scriptures can stay with you longer. That's why it's easier to, believe it or not, it's easier to memorize the King James Bible than it is in any other translation. Because it's poetic. It's got a rhyme and a rhythm that goes to it. So when I'm doing this, the neurosensors are activated and I'm beginning, not only am I, am I in motion, that's why when you, when you dance to a song, you ever notice how I can remember that song. Why? You were doing something that God designed you to do. There's supposed to be motion and rhythm in what you do and before God. That's why we miss out, you know, we sing like this. We're like wooden Indians, right, at a cigar store. You know, and our mouth barely moves. And when our mouth barely moves and our body doesn't, our heart rarely does. It's just, it's just physiology. It's just the way God made us. He made us to move. And it ties us back in. Now watch this. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and the harp. Okay? Let's put something in this. Let's... God loves this idea of music, right? For the Lord takes pleasure in his people, and he will beautify the humble with salvation. Humility brings with it beauty, doesn't it? When I walk humbly before God, there's something, there's an attractiveness to to humility that I can't get away from. You know why? Because it's so opposite of Lucifer, who is filled with pride. Don't mistake confidence for pride. Don't mistake being beaten down for humility. If you think you are, you're probably not humble. Right? Because it, you lose a sense of awareness about that. Now, here's where it gets good. Okay? Verse 5. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. I'm laying in bed. What am I doing? I'm just thinking about everything that's going on. Stop it. Stop it right now. Sing to the Lord. You know why your mind races at night and you can't get anywhere? Because you were never made to do that. You ever been on a treadmill? You can, you can walk a lot of miles on a treadmill and get how far? 
Nowhere. You ain't going nowhere. It's going around and around and around and around. You're just, but when your mind's doing this stuff, stop it and just start praising God. Just start singing praises. See, the enemy loves it when you just let your mind go over and over and over and over and over and over because you don't praise him. You don't praise God. Now, watch this. Let their high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. Am I supposed to lay in bed with a sword? Uh-huh. Yeah, a two-edged sword. What is that? The Word of God. Now, what has he got? He's just put music, rhythm, and the Word together. Let's just take this idea of worship and Word. That's what he's put together there for you. You're laying in bed. God, I just want to sing you. I want to sing a new song unto you. And God, as I think about it, I think about Psalm 2. And you quote Psalm 2. And the word and the worship, and you're going into this thing. And God is transporting you into the spiritual domain right there. Right there into the presence of God. Why am I doing it? So I can sleep? No. Verse 7 to execute vengeance on the, on the nations. I'm going to war. I'm laying in bed. I'm going to war against the nations that are hostile toward God. I'm battling principalities and powers and wicked rulers in high places on my bed. I'm understanding something about this destined for the throne, this power and this praise that goes along with God. And what am I going to do? And punishments on the people to bind their kings with chains. Oh, this is not the earthly kings. These are the, these are the powers over the nations, like Daniel referred to in Daniel 10 about the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. I'm there to bind something. I'm there to stop the activity of the enemy on my behalf, on the behalf of my people, and on the behalf of, of nations. To bind their kings with chains, their nobles with fetters of iron. I'm going to hit every strata of this thing to bind their kings and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the, 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 the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Guess what? You get to do that. You get to do that. You don't have to go to school to do that. You don't have to be special to do that. You get to do that because you found Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right, let me take you a little, uh, little further into this if I can. Go to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Psalm 22, and um, look at verse 3. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Israel begins to praise, and what happens? We understand God on his throne. High and lifted up. What did, what did, uh, remember what Isaiah did in, in Isaiah 6? He said, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. You see, when he went there to praise, and when he went there to pray, all of a sudden God became majestic. We have to keep God majestic in our heart and in our mind. To understand what God is up to. 
Turn to page uh, 120 in your book, okay? And I told you I'm out of order, but I'll, I'll go back and try to, to do some of this in order in a minute. Page 120. Um, the heading there is, Why is praise so effective against Satan? And this is the um, first new, the second new paragraph on that section. Although God is omnipresent, he is not everywhere present in benign influence. Where there's joyful praise, there is dynamically and benevolently active. In Psalm 22, we are told that God inhabits the praises of his people. This means that wherever there is adoration, reverence, and acceptable worship and praise, there he identifies and openly, openly manifests his presence. His presence always expels Satan. Satan cannot operate, operate in a divine ambulance. For years, many, without fully understanding why, have known that praise is power. May this not be the explanation. Is it not a convincing rationale for praise? In short, Satan is allergic to praise. So where there is massive triumphant praise, Satan is paralyzed, bound, and banished. That good. The secret of overcoming faith, therefore, is praise. It was James who said, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Since praise produces the atmosphere in which divine presence resides, it is most effective shield against Satan and satanic attack because praise is anathema, means to be accursed, to Satan. It is the most powerful defense and the most devastating weapon in the conflict with him. Thus, praise assures victory in prayer because it overcomes Satan, who is the great antagonist in prayer warfare. So when I am quiet without praise, I become a target. Now, this just, it fit in so well with this whole idea of starting this house of prayer and, and, uh, I'm so excited to, to see what God is going to do with this. It's, it really is just, to me, amazing. And, and I also realize, let me just say this kind of parenthetically. You know, we have, uh, we have especially in the last year and a half, but especially maybe the last year, we have, we have taken such, strong, such a strong stand on things like the miracles of God, prayer, praise, um, evangelism, different things like that. We've seen so much happen. Don't think that that goes unnoticed by the enemy. You know? I mean, he's not crazy about this place. And he wants to do everything he can to discourage you. And I want to just tell you, if you ever go through those moments where you feel a little down or whatever, just praise God. You ever go through those times where you don't know the answer? Praise God. Where you ever just say, I don't even know what I'm going to do? Just praise God. Just try it. Just Put it before God. The importance of continuous and massive praise. It was almost like, I mean, this book was probably written 35 years ago. It was almost like Bickle read this and said, I think we ought to have a house of prayer. Okay? The praise which overcomes is not merely occasional, spasmodic praise that fluctuates with moods and circumstances. You ever do that? You ever have your praise just kind of fluctuate around? I feel like praising him today, and then you go for hours without praising him. It is continuous praise, praise that is a vocation, a way of life. I will praise, I will, um, I will, it will, it is continuous praise. I will bless, 
That is, praise the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Blessed are they who dwell in the house of the Lord. In thy house they will be always praising thee. Psalm 84. It has been pointed out that heaven praise is so important that it constitutes the total occupation of certain beings. So God gets, God gets these heavenly creatures, and here's your assignment. Just praise me all the day long. Well, what should I do after that? Just keep praising me. What about then? Just praise me. I love your praise. I, I love your praise. And you lo- and, and, and what brings that praise brings my presence, and you love my presence. And you see how those two work together? I praise him, and he, he blesses me with presence. Praise and presence. Praise and presence. It's continual. God gave King David such a revelation of the importance of the power of praise upon the earth. Following the heavenly pattern, he set aside a dedicated army of 4,000 Levites whose sole occupation was to praise God. They did nothing else. One of the last official acts of King David before his death was the organization of a formal program of praise. Each morning and every evening, a contingent of these 4,000 Levites engage in the service and to stand every morning to thank and praise the Lord and likewise at evening. To the shame and defeat of the church, the significance of massive praise content of the word have been largely overlooked. I don't know about you, but man, I, I just read that, that section and I just thought, wow, wow. Wow, why, why not more? Why not more? Why not more praise? So I want us just to stop for a moment, and I'm going to do something. I want you just to stand with me, and I want you just to, um, I want you to close your eyes. And I'm going to do some real cheesy sound stuff here. God, as we just uh, stand here in your presence, we know that, God, the praises of your people, God, they just, you inhabit those. God, you just, you move into our midst right now, and you envelop us, God, in such a powerful way that we can only, God, only just really love you more. God, may our praise be massive and continuous May our praise really just be a fixed habit in our soul. 
May we come before you, God, with our praises day and night. May the name of the Lord be glorified in this place. Praise you, God, with a new song. Praise you, God, with a new song. Holy is the Lord, and worthy is the Lamb to be praised. May his name be lifted high above every name that is given in this age or in the age to come. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Um, as we as we think about praise and as we think about, as we work kind of backwards now in this book, um, you know, in chapter 7 he talks about unanswered prayer. And, and he talks about some reasons we have unanswered prayer. One of them is pride in our prayer. You ever kind of gone through a deep pride moment? Just... I need to humble myself before God moment. I like to call it deep pride. You know, like you're deep pride, but you're deep pride. And really what you're saying is, I don't want to be anything like Lucifer. That's what you're really saying. I don't want to be anything like him. I don't want to be anything like him. In any way I'm like him, God, I don't want to be like him. And the natural result of deep priding is humility. Because it's only when pride rises up, you see, that humility slips out. That's really what happens. And I don't know about you, but it's, it's kind of one of those things where uh, I need to do it like every day and sometimes more. Right? Because I forget. I forget about how great he is, and I begin to think maybe I know something or I know better. And God just says, no, let's go through a deep pride moment. Let's just kind of go back through that process. But he talks about how pride and, and how sometimes in James 4 it says sometimes when we pray, we're really just praying about the stuff we want. It's really not God's stuff. It's our stuff. And we try to layer the right kind of prayer on it, the right kind of scripture on it to make it sound like it's, our, it's really God's stuff, and it's really not. So take your Bibles. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You know, the Apostle Paul was uh, pretty significant, and yet if you look at his life and kind of the, the trip to the desert and, and the way that God saved him on the Damascus Road and he got uh, blindness, and then you look at this thorn in the flesh, whatever in the world it was. There's been a lot of speculation. Some people think it was literally blindness caused from, the, from that on the road. It, some of them think the thorn in the flesh was, uh, was his physical physique. I mean, there's just all kinds of things you can go into. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that God said, I'm going to show you something that I'm not showing anybody else. And I'm going to make it so tough on you because you can't tell anybody. And the only way you're going to keep from getting puffed up with, with that information without telling anybody is if I inflict you with a thorn in the flesh. And that's going to keep you humble. Because you see, Paul, I like you humble. I don't like you proud. I saw proud Saul, and I didn't like him, so I changed him into humble Paul. And that's why most of the New Testament written by Paul was written from where? Anybody know? Where do you write the letters from? Prison. If he'd not gone to prison, we wouldn't have most of the New Testament. And I got a feeling that Prison in those days was a little bit rougher than prison today. 
I got a feeling there's no TVs in the cells. And no, I mean, I think things are pretty rough, right? So let's go to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12. And here's what, here's what Paul says, verse 1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether uh, out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. This thing has been going on in his life for 14 years. He sees the vision, 14 years goes by, and he's still not talking. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out, I do not, God knows, how being caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for me to utter. Can you imagine getting that, to- that close in to that heavenly scene, hearing things and seeing things, and you're never able to talk about it? Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain lest anyone should think uh, of me above what he sees or what he hears from me. He's almost writing in a, in a cryptic fashion, isn't he? He's, he's, he's saying, what's going on here? But now look what it says. He kind of starts to clarify it in verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. How many want a thorn? Anybody want a thorn? Raise your hand. Want a thorn from God? What if, what if, what if, you could get a thorn, but, I mean, but what, we, what you'd get is you get these revelations of God, see things and hear things you can't even speak, and it lives you in wonder the rest of your life. Would you take a thorn? I'm not sure if we would, right? It sounds good, but it was so painful and so difficult for Paul that he prayed for its removal. Now look what it says. This thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of who? You mean God sent a messenger of Satan to hang with Paul and to inflict him and bring difficulty on him, and there was no deliverance? Yep. Yep, that's what it says. I don't like what it says, but that's what it says. It makes it hard to to build a theology around that, but that's what it says. He said, lest I be exalted above measure. The only way I could walk in humility was a messenger of Satan, my thorn in the flesh. It's the only way. I couldn't get any other way. It's the equivalent to, the, to Jacob when the angel touched his thigh and he limped the rest of his life. He said, you're no longer Jacob, a deceiver. You're now the prince with God. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. God, please. God, please remove this thorn in the flesh. God, I can't stand it. It's so painful. It's so difficult. Can you just hear the prayers of him? Can you see him pounding his fists before God? God, I've healed others. Why will you not heal me? God, the other apostles, they laid hands on me, and it didn't work. God, why, 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 why? He's pleading, and finally the revelation comes. It comes in verse 9. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, Paul, you like to be strong, but I like you weak. 
I like you weak, Paul. I like it when you're disturbed by this messenger. That's a better version of Paul. Therefore, he says, now now look, now all of a sudden he moves from, from that revelation into inspiration. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ rests upon me. Wow. I don't know about you, but that's, that's easy to quote, but I'm sure it's harder to live. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches, in needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, let's look at the list again. Let's just trick it out. Verse 10. I take pleasure in infirmities. Anybody take pleasure in infirmities? He says, I do. How about this one? I take pleasure in reproach. I I take, when people say something about me, I take pleasure in that. When people take shots at me, I take pleasure in that. Because whether they're true or not true, what it does is it has the same effect. Humility. has the same effect. You say, well, I've got to defend myself on this. Side. No, no, you don't. You, it, it has the same effect. How about distresses? Just distress. Ever been in, I mean, just take the diss off and you can kind of figure out what it is, right? Stress. It's an Italian way of saying stress. Distress. For Christ's sake. For when I am weak... That I'm strong. So what do I do in the mislet? Look what he says. I will gladly rejoice. I will gladly praise. I will gladly give God the glory. God, I thank you for all of this because in all of this process that I'm going through, it makes me more like you. When I get to those places in my life, it's imagine it's amazing how much clearer my prayers are. I don't pray the James 4, 3 prayers of selfishness. I'm not even tempted to go there. It's in the absence of all of that other that I go there. It's in the absence of all of that other that I gripe and I complain and I whine and I think my world is bad. It's in the absence of those that I, I think I'm self-righteous. I think I'm righteous and I'm good and, I'm, and, you know, and, then, and everybody else is bad. It's in the absence of those things. Let's take a break.